So we're, we're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, and we come to chapter 2, still in chapter 2 again today, and I want to talk about heroes. You know, my childhood heroes, like a lot of kids, you know, at that time, were mostly athletes. Um, I can remember growing up, and I was so into sports, uh, still am, I confess, but as a young boy, so into sports that as the sports seasons changed, my heroes would, would change. And I would, you know, I would go out, for example, in the fall. I can still remember very vividly going out in the fall during football season and pretending to be Roger Staubach, you know, throwing those Hail Mary passes and uh, throwing, uh, playing catch with my dad or some neighborhood kids in the neighborhood and <clears throat> landing in piles of leaves. We lived in the Northeast at the time. Or in the, even in the winter, after the snow came, just playing in the snow in the front yard. And then, of course, in the, uh, you know, as football season ended, it was basketball. And I was out there on my driveway being, you know, Larry Bird was one of my heroes, and Dr. J. Um, and, and then in the summer, it was baseball. And so I would spend hours literally playing out in the front yard every day after school with tennis balls and my Reggie Jackson bat from bat day at Yankee Stadium. Uh, but my hero was Lou Pinella. He was my favorite uh, baseball player back then for the Yankees. Uh, it was different, though. Uh, today, I'm not sure most athletes are, are suitable heroes. When we face a crisis of some kind or a tragedy or a trial, we naturally look for a hero. We want someone to, to be there for us, someone to rescue us, uh, someone to, to kind of swoop in and fend off the enemy, or at the very least, if they can't rescue us, someone to just motivate us and inspire us to hang on and, and sort of relate to us to get through this trying time, whatever it may be. Where are those heroes today? Where are they? I mean, they're certainly not sports figures, right? Uh, I mean, even secular media like the Washington Post has admitted sports stars are not heroes in, in an article. If you want a hero, don't look to, to mainstream athletes. What about politicians? Are politicians our heroes? Hardly. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe some. Certainly, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. But I do like what uh, that great theologian Robin Williams said. He, he defined politicians this way. He said, politicians is a plural noun. It's from the Latin poly, meaning many, and ticks, meaning blood-sucking creatures. So <laughs> I don't know if he had... Some truth there or not. What about uh, religious leaders? Are they our heroes today? Now, I was in high school and college in the 80s, so that'll kind of date me a little bit. But, you know, that's basically eight years of the 80s. Uh, and it was in the 80s that uh, we learned a thing or two about televangelists, didn't we? And religious leaders and moral failure and falling from grace. Even in our day, it continues to happen. We don't need to name names, but Colorado Springs is no stranger to fallen evangelical leaders in the past few years. And even right now, major evangelical figures are facing some tough times because of some poor decisions they have made. Someone has said evangelical leaders are dropping faster than coins from a rigged slot machine in Vegas. Maybe that's true. Where are the trustworthy Christian heroes? Well, as we continue our series through Hebrews on unshakable uh, faith, 
The writer is trying to remind us how to maintain our steadfast faith in the midst of difficult times. So just to review, in chapter 1, he starts out by saying, look, Jesus is the best. He's superior. Stick with Him. He'll get you through these tough times. In the context, it's the late 60s A.D. The Roman Emperor Nero is persecuting Christians and rounding them up, throwing them in prison, even burning some of them at the stake. And so consequently, many of these Jewish believers, Jews who had come to faith in Christ and that therefore were associating with Christianity, were contemplating turning their backs on Christianity, if, not, if for no other reason than their own safety and the safety of their family. And the writer writes this letter to say, look, don't abandon Christ. He's your Savior. He's the best. That was chapter 1. Then we looked at the first of uh, five warning passages in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says, look, don't forsake the great salvation that you have in Christ. Think about all that He did for you. So continuing with pointing them to Christ. And then last week, he continues yet again to point them to Christ as the future world leader. The one who's going to come back and make all things new. Why would you want to distance yourself from the very King of Kings who is going to solve the problem of tyranny and persecution? And then today, he, he focuses his uh, sights on Jesus and His humanity. He is a hero that can be counted on. He's like us, but He's better than us. He's what we long for among our kindred, someone that we can look to and point to as a hero. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll put the verses on the screen as well, but if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to, to follow along. I want to show you five characteristics of true heroes that apply to Christ in this passage that the writer reminds his original audience and us, by extension, to think about. First of all, we need to understand that heroes rally. Heroes rally. The first century persecuted church needed a rallying cry. They needed someone to, to rally the troops. You know, like, like underdogs before a big game. Uh, they needed the, you know, the, the cheerleaders to, to come out at the pep rally before homecoming or something and, 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 and rally the crowd, rally the students. They needed the team captain or maybe a coach to give a a rousing speech to instill courage and confidence. As I was thinking about the way heroes are called to rally people, I couldn't help but think of some famous movies. Maybe you've seen these, but, you know, they, they needed someone like a Gene Hackman in Hoosiers to rally them. They, they needed a Billy Bob Thornton in Friday Night Lights or maybe a Denzel Washington in Remember the Titans or one of the best movie sports speeches of all time, an Al Pacino in any given Sunday. That's what they needed, someone to rally them. Look what he says. For it was fitting for him, that's Christ, for whom all are things, that's God actually, for whom all are things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, watch this, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, Let's go back and pick up some context. The, the, this verse, verse 10, begins with the word for. It's an explanatory word in Greek, and it sort of points back to what he just said. Basically, it's like saying, in light of this, well, well, what had he been saying? He'd been talking about how Jesus will reign someday, that we looked at uh, last week. But first, he's got to go through suffering. Remember? Uh, sacrifice before victory. 
humility before honor. And so he's going to give some more commentary on that. And he focuses especially on the last part of verse 9. If you remember, he said, who tastes death for everyone. And so now he's going to talk about this captain of our salvation. And, and, he, and he says, by the way, that the Son of Man, Jesus, remember he quoted from Psalm 8, is not the only one God intends to glorify. All of His sons, believers, you and I, will experience this glorification, bringing many sons to glory, notice he says there. So the, the captain is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of Man. God perfected Him by charting His path to glory through suffering, through propitiation, through atonement, to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. But He's ultimately going to be made perfect, just as we are. That phrase perfect there in Greek, it's the word teleos. It's a key word in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. It's used nine times. And we see the word perfect in English, and we think perfect, like flawless, right? In Greek, teleos has more to do with maturity, uh, growth, being tested, tried, proven. Ultimately, Jesus Christ was, is, and ever will be perfect. We won't be perfect this side of glory, but once we put off this human flesh and we receive our glorified bodies, then we will have passed the test and be, uh, receive the, the ultimate perfection, as it were. So He's the captain of our salvation. Like Him, we're being made perfect, mature, through suffering. But I want us to focus on this word captain for a second. It's a very unique word in Greek. It's the word archegos. It's used only four times in the Bible. And all four times it refers to Jesus Christ. It's translated captain here in Hebrews 2.10, but it, it can be translated leader, founder, pioneer. Um, it's used twice by Peter of the four times in the book of Acts. If you remember when he was preaching his sermon at Solomon's porch, he referred to Christ as the prince of life, the archegos of life, the, the prince, the, the founder, the leader, you know, the captain, if you will. And then again in Acts 5.31, after Peter and John had been miraculously freed from prison, uh, Peter speaking to the high priest, and he refers to Jesus as the prince and savior, the archegos and savior. But it's used the other two times in Hebrews. Once here in Hebrews 2.10, where it's translated captain in the New King James. And then I bet you could guess, if you had to venture a guess, at the other occasion. It's Hebrews 12.2, where he's, Jesus is referred to as the author and finisher of our faith. Same word, archegos, just the New King James chose to translate it author versus captain. He's our captain. Well, what do captains do? Captains lead. They set the example. They do what leaders do. You know, I taught leadership for a number of years at the college and graduate levels, and I mostly taught Bible and theology, but this was an opportunity in a new degree program that our school had launched, and I taught many of the leadership courses. And, of course, I had to learn a thing or two about leadership in the process. <clears throat> and I learned two very important things during that time. First of all, I learned that leadership is not what most people think it is. See, most people think leadership is evaluated based on the number of followers. In fact, some people even jokingly say, well, a leader without followers is just a guy taking a walk. But that is not true. Leadership is not about followers. Leadership is not about how many likes you have on 
whatever gets likes. I don't do social media. Facebook, I think, or uh, tweets or, or people, how many you know, people like your videos on YouTube. It's not about that. I mean, anybody, if they market it right, can get thousands and tens of thousands or millions of hits or likes or whatever it is, thumbs up on their social media. The leadership's not about followers. In fact, this guy learned that the hard way. I love this. You remember the old Far Side cartoons with Gary Larson? This is a Far Side cartoon. So here's a group of, I guess, safari leaders, and of course the leader steps on a trap, and it, it doesn't uh, go uh, very well for him there. But I want you to notice this guy second in line. He's turning to the guy behind him, and the caption, what he says to the guy behind him is, that's why I never walk in front. That's why I never walk in front. The captain of our salvation. So I learned that leadership's not what we always think it is. The second thing I learned was that I'm not always the best leader. Because leadership fundamentally is about influence. It's about influence. It's not about a title. Um, you know, Jesus didn't wear the title captain. He didn't go around with a bronze star and have people salute him. He was the epitome of servant leadership. It's only 30 years after his death and resurrection that through the inspiration of the Spirit, the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, he was our captain. Why? Because he had great influence. So stay-at-home moms raising their children are leaders. Uh, grandparents babysitting their grandchildren are leaders. Leadership is about influence. And that means that leadership means being willing to take a stand. So one of the definitions that I've kind of adopted and used many times about leadership is that leadership is a willingness to stand alone. A willingness to stand. It's not about how many followers you are. How many followers did Jesus have as he rode the Via Dolorosa up to, walked the Via Dolorosa up to Golgotha? <laughs> By that time, they all abandoned him. And he was alone between two thieves who never met him until that moment. One of them believed in him, one of them rejected him, but he was alone. Yet he was the perfect leader. See, heroes don't follow the crowd, they rally the crowd. That's what heroes do. They set the direction. They're willing to stand alone. When everyone else says no, they're saying, yes, yes, we can do this. Just come with me. Come on, I, we've got this. That's what leaders do. When a leader follows the crowd instead of standing firm on conviction, he's not a hero. He's a coward, really. So I want to illustrate the folly of following the crowd instead of being a leader with a humorous video clip here. Let me set the stage for you. So we're talking about the dangers of following the crowd instead of standing firm on your convictions. And this is a spoof of the great uh, uh, game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I think it's still on, but when it first started, you know, Regis Philbin was the, the leader and, and the host, and man, it, was, it captivated us. We all watched it. So those of you that remember that show will uh, relate to this. But this is a lesson about the dangers of following the crowd. Well, Matt, you've come a long ways and had a couple of close calls a few times, too. Yeah. But here we are at the final question. If you answer correctly, you'll walk away from here with one million dollars. Now, what will you do with the money? You and your wife, Whitney, want a charity, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Is she here? Where is Whitney? Hi, Regis. Whitney, what will this money go towards? 
Uh, we're planning to build and supply orphanages in third world countries. Well, that's very noble of you two. But let's see if Matt and his orphans are about to become millionaires. All right, Matt, here is your question. Who was the 26th president of the United States? Was it A, William McKinley, B, Theodore Roosevelt, C, William Howard Taft, or D, George Washington? I'm not sure, but I know it's not George Washington. Maybe Roosevelt? Would you like to ask the audience? Yeah, let's pull the audience. All right, audience, time to weigh in. Who was the 26th president of the United States? Let's see what they said. Wow. Literally 100% of our studio audience feels the answer is D, George Washington. Yes. I'm sorry, everyone, but I, I don't think that's correct. Are you positive? Yeah. It's a bold choice to go against numbers like that. Mm-hmm. But George Washington was the first president, so he really couldn't have been the 26th. Well, your wife was one of the voters, Matt. <laughs> Are you sure she got it wrong? Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, honey, but I don't think that it's George Washington. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, would you like to phone a friend? Yes, my sister Mallory is a professor of history at Stanford, so... Well, let's go to the phones. Hello? Hello, is this Mallory? It is. Mallory, hi, this is Regis. I'm with your brother Matt. He's going for a million dollars, but he needs your help. Uh, okay, what's the question? Okay, Mallory, who was the 26th president of the United States? Is it A... George Washington. What? <laughs> No, let me give you all the options. No, I don't need the options. It's George Washington. Final answer. No, Mallory, George Washington was the first president. I need to know who the 26th president was. I heard you, and I'm telling you, it's George Washington. Well, he was a founding father, and he fought in the revolution. Yes, and to honor him, they made him our 26th president. Why would they wait that long? He would have been dead by that point. Isn't it Theodore Roosevelt? Theodore Roosevelt? I don't even think that's a real person. Well, she seemed pretty emphatic. But she's wrong. You're all wrong. Are you sure? Yes. This is basic, basic American history. Now, Matt, you could choose not to answer and walk away with $500,000. No, I'm pretty sure it's Teddy Roosevelt. I'm going to answer B, Theodore Roosevelt. Are you sure? <laughs> what? There's a lot of orphans counting on you, Matt. Are you sure you want this to be your final answer? I'm pretty sure. How confident are you? I'm pretty confident. I mean, I was more confident before I started asking everyone. It can't be Washington, right? I mean, there's no way I'm wrong about that one. Well, how confident are you? Well, it's just weird that everyone thinks it's him. And my sister teaches history for a living, so maybe. Would you like to use your final lifeline? Oh, yes, 50-50. Let's do it. All right, computers? Oh, this is not happening. It has to be Roosevelt. Now, you could choose not to answer, but if you guess wrong, you'll go only walk away from here with $32,000, and after taxes, that's more like 2000 No, I gotta go for it. 
All right. Well, a minute ago, it seemed that you had ruled out Washington completely. Yeah, but that was before your little light show and the music and everyone telling me I'm wrong. I don't know what I know anymore. No. No, it has to be Roosevelt. My answer is Roosevelt. Are you sure? <laughs> Think about the orphans, Matt. You are the devil, Regis. We need an answer. I gave you one, but you keep making me doubt myself. What is your final answer? D. George Washington. That's incorrect. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I want you just to imagine what it would have been like if Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, had polled the audience. So here's Jesus. Uh, hey, should I, should I put on human flesh and, and try to rescue all you bozos from your own predicament? And the crowd says, no, 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 don't come down here to earth. It's way too dangerous. There's no way you can defeat death, hell, and the grave. Every human being before you has tried on their own and failed. Give up. Don't do it. Jesus could have given in. He could have gone with the crowd. But instead, he rallied the crowd. He followed his convictions. And as we shall see in the end, of course, it led to the rescue of mankind from the penalty of sin. He did what captains are supposed to do. He won the victory. He set the example. He's a hero worth following. But next, the writer tells us not only do heroes rally, but they relate. They're not above others, lording it over them. They're one of them. They can relate. Listen to what he says. He, in verse 11, says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them, that's us, brethren. Heroes relate. And then he goes on in the next two verses to quote three Old Testament passages. Now we're seeing this a lot as we work our way through Hebrews, that since his audience was Jewish Christians, the writer frequently is going to pull in Old Testament passages to bolster his claim. Because remember, these were Jews first, and then they got saved by believing in Jesus Christ, and now they're contemplating reverting back to Judaism. So he's sort of using their own arguments against them. And here he quotes from Psalm 22 and twice from Isaiah 8. And they illustrate, first of all, that Jesus is, would not even hesitate to identify with the people of God. Psalm 22, 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And then in the second quotation, we learn that Jesus, as well as his followers, trusted God. In fact, this is the basis of our intimate fellowship. Jesus trusted the Father. And the writer of Hebrews is challenging his readers and us today, facing trying times, to trust the Father as well. Be like me. And then he says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Believers are Jesus Christ's spiritual children. And as such, he will provide for us and prepare for the future for us like a loving parent. This is, by the way, the only place in the Bible where we see Christians described as the children of Christ. We know elsewhere they're children of God, but this is a strong testimony to the Trinity and the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God. He heroes relate. In the passage we read together a moment ago, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man. He's one of us. He's fully human. 
tested in every way like we are. And as such, he can relate. And then we learn that heroes risk in verse 14. They not only rally and relate, but they risk. Listen to what the writer says. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Again, he didn't have to leave the confines of eternity. He didn't have to leave uh, the atemporal, aspatial realm of eternity, put on human flesh and come down here into the devil's backyard, make himself vulnerable. But he did. He, he says in John 10 that no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. He took the risk. See, heroes do heroic things. That's what makes them heroes. They take the risks. Boy, as we look around us at what's going on today, I, I think we need a hero. Everyone does. And, and Jesus is that hero. Anyone else you look to will let you down. Don't look to me, by the way. That's the last thing I want you to do, because I guarantee you I will let you down. You know, I, I'm coming in as, as a pastor after a fantastic man of God, who, by the way, I'm having lunch with this week, who was here for 18 years. There's no way I can measure up. He's a dear, dear man of God and a dear friend, and you love him. You've known me for six weeks, and, and many have already formed opinions, right? I don't want you to look to me as your hero, right? Hopefully, God can use my teaching and my ministry to help mold and shape the body of Christ the way the Bible says that church, local churches should function. Don't look to me. Don't look to your other elders. Don't look to any other human being as a hero. Our hero is Jesus. That's who we want to look to. Remember we said in week one of this series, stick with Jesus. That's what the writer was saying. Now we're saying look to Jesus. Back to 1 Timothy, which we looked at a second ago. He's not only the man, Christ Jesus, but he took the risk. He gave himself a ransom for all. In Philippians, uh, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This verse here, by the way, is from the New American Standard. I think it's a little bit better captures the, the original language here. But notice what it says. Although he existed in the form of God, that is, he is God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, most fake heroes, that's what they do. When push comes to shove, they're going to retreat. They're going to retreat to their safe haven, whatever it is. Jesus didn't. He emptied himself. That word empty is kanao. It's where we get the, the doctrine of the kenosis, the emptying of himself. One lexicon defines kanao as depriving of power. Okay. We know he was fully God. We know he's fully man. We can't really understand both. <laughs> It's one of those biblical antinomies, something contrary to human logic. How can you be 100% God, yet 100% man? And we see that in Scripture. He hungered, he thirsted, he, he was weary, he cried, he wept. Yet he's God. And, and it would be difficult to even try to explain what we mean by the kenosis. Many theologians far greater than me have tried, but it, it, at its ultimate base level, it just means that he willingly gave up something. He could have called 10,000 angels to prevent him from going to the cross, but he didn't, right? He took a risk, hero's risk. 
So heroes rally the troops, they relate to the troops, they risk, and then they do what heroes do, which is rescue. Rescuing is really number one on their job description, right? You apply for the job of hero. might be many characteristics that the uh, hiring manager is looking for, but right there at the top of the list is going to be, you need to be able to rescue people when they're in danger. <laughs> and that's what Jesus did. The writer goes on in verse 15 to say, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The word release is apolosso. It's used only three times in the New Testament. It means to set free. To help paint the word picture, we, we see it used in Luke 12 of being released from a debt. And in Acts 19 of diseases and evil spirits leaving, it's translated leaving the body. So releasing those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So even though salvation has always been by grace through faith from Adam forward, it's always been a free gift. It's always been paid for by the Lamb of God. These Jewish believers had spent their lifetimes by the time Christ came on the scene being taught incorrectly by the legalistic, pharisaical leaders of Judaism that they had to do more, work harder, be better, straighten up, dot their I's, cross their T's, and if they did that, then they might get into the kingdom someday. They were in bondage. And therefore, they were afraid. Well, guess what? Many people today, things haven't changed. Many people today spend a lifetime in bondage to fear because they don't know for certain whether they'll spend eternity in heaven. Yet the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. Do you believe the promise of Christ when He said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish? Or was He just kidding? <laughs> On the authority of Scripture, we can say with absolute certainty that all who trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who died and rose again for their sins and has the authority to forgive sin and give life, if you've trusted in Him, you have eternal life. You don't need to be fearful. And that's all because Jesus, our hero, paid our sin debt. He rescued us. Galatians 1.4, again, I'm using the NASB here because I like the word rescue. The New, American, I mean, the New King James says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us. Same Greek word, but it's, I think rescue is a little bit more relatable. And that's what he does. Jesus rescues us from this present evil age. He rescues us first from the penalty of sin, which is eternal torment in a literal place of, called hell, but also ultimately from the day-to-day -day struggles and trials of life. He's our hero. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of rescue, I went back and looked at, the, uh, at our church website. If you haven't checked out the Plum Creek Chapel website lately, we've made some updates and changes on there, and it's coming together I say I appreciate John's uh, help with that. But uh, our mission statement, maybe you haven't looked at our mission statement for a while, but one of the things in our mission statement is this, quote, we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who rescues mankind from eternal condemnation. That's what heroes do. They rescue. And finally, heroes not only relate, not only rally and relate and rescue and risk, they respond. They respond. He closes out this passage here with these words for indeed he does not give aid to angels but he does give aid 
to the seed of Abraham. Right? We are the seed of Abraham. Again, see the reference there back to angels because these early first century believers were really infatuated with angels in, the, in chapter 1. We talked about how they thought angels were even better than this Jesus who had saved them. So he's saying, well, look, this hero, he skips right over the angels. He's not here to help them. He's here to help you. And therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. So we see that relatability again. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the verb form of propitiation, the noun, to propitiate, basically. And it means to satisfy God's wrath. He responded, we sinned of our own volition. God became angry and the hero stepped in. To rescue us. He responds when we needed to be saved from our own predicament. And not only does He save us from the penalty of sin, but the passage ends with a reminder that in that He Himself suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those, to respond and help those who are tempted. He responds day after day when we're facing trials. Like David, who cried out for God and knew that God would answer him. Christ responds. David said, In the day when I cried out, you answered me. And notice, you made me bold with strength in my soul. The word soul in Hebrew is nephesh. It just means life. It doesn't necessarily mean the immaterial. It just means you emboldened me, is the idea. And we too can cry out to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is going to make this clear in the weeks to come as we work our way through this book. For example, in chapter 7, <clears throat> the writer says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, again, that's the word deliver, deliver and save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him because He always lives to make intercession for them. He responds. It's the reason we pray in Jesus' name, because He's up there at the right hand of God interceding uh, for us. In chapter 9, the writer is going to say, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies or shadows of the, the reality, the true, but He's entered heaven itself right now. Why? To appear in the presence of God for us. Paul says He makes intercession for us. He listens and He responds. John says He's our advocate. That's what a hero is, an advocate, isn't it? Heroes respond. Do you need help navigating these trying times? You wake up like I do some days and just wonder, what is going on in the world? Where is our true north? Where is our stake in the ground? Where can we go? Well, we can go to Jesus, just the way the first century Jewish Christians needed to go to Jesus. He's their advocate. He's our advocate, and He responds. Everyone needs a hero. Because heroes rally the troops. They don't just follow the crowd. They lead. Heroes relate. They're one of us. They're part of the team. They take risks. Ultimately, they rescue us. And they respond continuously whenever we need them. So what's the takeaway? Well, I would just say this. Let Jesus be our hero. He saved you. You trusted Him for the most important thing in life, to forgive your sin and give you eternal life. You're relying on Him to give you that gift of heaven when you stand at the, at the golden gates someday, right? Why not trust Him day by day? And as we go through this series, we're going to see that there are going to be a lot of things that we face 
and that the original audience faced? And the answer is the same. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this encouragement uh, about a steadfast faith, an unflinching faith. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to strengthen our faith, forgive us for our lack of faith and our weak faith. And Lord, as we, uh, as we navigate life, which is already complicated enough and it seems has gotten even more complicated with all that's going on in the world, help us to be men and women of faith, mirroring the examples that you give later on in, in, in this uh, book of Hebrews, in the, the Hall of Faith chapter. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, what he did for us on the cross, and thank you what he, for what he's doing for us day after day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.